Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Really excited to get into the content this morning because today we are starting a brand new series that's going to take us all the way up to Easter. And I got to admit, I have a very unique anticipation in my spirit for the content we're going to be discussing over the next eight weeks. And, and I don't say that because I don't get excited about all the things that we share around here. I like all the series we do. I like all the things we preach about. And I better because I do like 80% of the communication. So I should hopefully enjoy the things I'm talking about. Uh, I heard a pastor say recently, he's like, you better love what you're preaching because if you don't love what you're preaching, ain't nobody going to love what you're preaching. Like that is sage advice right there for sure. Uh, but I, although I love everything we talk about around here, I just, there's this very unique excitement and anticipation about the content we're going into because of what I believe the Holy Spirit is going to do in our community as we ramp up to Easter. Um, before I introduce the, the title of the series and, and the content, uh, let me tell you why I'm uniquely excited. I think there is a trap in our journey of faith to begin to make the entirety of our Christianity about us. To, to think that this whole project is about self-improvement or becoming a better version of ourselves. Like the things that we do, the going to church, the reading the Bible, the going through the small groups and, and the discipleship and all the things are to hold up a mirror and go, how can I become a better version of me? How do I sin less and become a better version of a human? Less ratchet, more righteous, if you will. And even for myself as a communicator, there is this ever-present temptation to appeal to that, that self-improvement desire in all of us to preach shallow sermons that are all about us without focusing our attention on what truly matters most. And, and don't get me wrong, you should be improving. <laughs> You should be becoming a better person if you're a follower of Jesus. All right, let, let me just be clear. Every legitimate follower of Jesus is in a process of sanctification. You should be day by day by day by day becoming less of like who you used to be and more like Jesus. You should be becoming more loving and, 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 and more selfless and, and more generous and looking for ways to serve other people. Th that's a natural byproduct of this thing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. First John says, if we are living in the light, then we shouldn't be doing things in the dark any longer. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are all being transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. So yes, you should be tra being transformed. There should be a sanctification taking place in your life. If it's not, and you've been following Jesus for a really long time, you probably need to do a little self-assessment and go like, is my faith legitimate? Do I need to repent? Do I need to get baptized like Ben? Shout out to Ben. My man is a preacher. Holy cow. Let's go. But yeah, you, you, you should be improving for sure. But while transformation and sanctification are the fruit of faith, they were never intended to be the focus of our faith. This is not all about us getting better and sinning less and becoming more free. Those are natural byproducts, but they are not the focus of faith. The reason we come to church on a Sunday morning, the reason we read the Bible, the reason we pray, the reason we go to small group, the reason we do all the things that we do as believers is not to look at ourselves, but it is to focus the entirety of our attention on Jesus. 
to stop looking in the mirror and to start looking at the king of kings. Because if we behold him, if we behold his love, if we behold his forgiveness, if we behold his grace, then we will become more like him. It's the natural byproduct. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. As we behold him with unveiled face, we are transformed into his image. It's all about Jesus. And so the reason I'm so excited about the series we're stepping into is because for the next eight weeks, we are intentionally taking the focus off of us and we are fixing our gaze on Jesus. Everything we're gonna talk about for the next eight weeks is vertical. It's all about him. We're gonna stop asking, what can he do for me? And we're gonna start asking, what does Jesus just say about himself? Which brings me to the title of this series. As we were singing about just a moment ago, for the next eight weeks, we're gonna be discussing the power and the presence of the great I am. The great I am. Shout out to Tim Santos, our graphics guy. <laughs> the great I am. Now, specifically, we're gonna be looking at eight statements that Jesus makes of himself in the book of John that all start with those two words, I am, as he begins to describe who he is in various forms. Now, I know we've got um, some Bible nerds in the room and some people that have been on the journey for a while, and you might be scratching your head right now because you're thinking, wait a minute, um, silly pastor up there with your unclothed ankles and your daisy on your shirt, think you know it all, but sir, there's only seven statements in the book of John that Jesus makes starting with I am. And if that's what you're thinking right now, to you I would ask, are you sure? Because as I read through the scriptures, I actually see eight in the book of John, one specifically that takes place in the garden as Jesus is arrested before he's taken to the cross, and I don't think that one gets enough airtime. So I don't care what the theologians say or what the bloggers say, I got a microphone in my hand, so we're going to talk about the eight statements that Jesus makes in the book of John, because I think that one is one of the most powerful statements he's ever made in scripture, and we're going to give it the airtime that it deserves in this series. Um, however, before we discuss what Jesus says, we also need to trace back these two words to their origin in scripture and look at where God introduces himself for the first time in the Bible as the great I am. In fact, that's how I want to spend all of our time today. We're not going to look at any of the statements in the book of John. Instead, we're going to trace this phrase back to its origin because ultimately its origin creates a foundation for everything Jesus says in the future. Uh, for that, we're going to be turning to the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, you can go there now. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter Three And um, as we go there, I'll pray one more time, but let me offer you a title because I didn't get to do that in our last series. So I'm offering you a title for this sermon today. I want to call this, I am coming down. I am coming down. Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, speak to us today. Thank you for uh, your presence. Thank you for the power of your word. Um, thank you for what's happening across the nation right now and probably in churches all across the globe as we gather on a Sunday morning and there is just a fresh hunger for the things of God. Uh, we just say right now, our hearts are hungry. Our spirits are hungry. We long for more of you, Jesus. So we pray as 
we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we hunger and thirst for your word, that you would fill us today with the only thing that satisfies, the word of the Lord. We turn our attention and our gaze to you, and we pray that you'd transform us by the power of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter three. Here is the, the backdrop for the series that we're going, or for the uh, scripture we're going to be reading here in just a moment. Um, God, after 430 years of slavery to the Egyptians, has decided to set his people free and come good on a promise he made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. We won't discuss that today. We don't have time. You can check it out on your own. But uh, as God decides to set his people free, he calls a deliverer, as he often does, by the name of Moses. And even if you're not super familiar with the Bible, you, you've probably got some of the details of Moses' life. Maybe you've heard them before. Uh, the, the brief Cliff Notes version, after being raised in Egypt by uh, the Egyptian royalty, uh, Moses commits murder, kills one of the Egyptian slave drivers, and then flees to the land of Midian, where he settles down near the wilderness of Sinai. And he gets married to a gal named Zipporah. Pretty cool name. Anyone here named Zipporah this morning? No? Okay. I guess... If you're looking for a baby name that I offer, actually, it's not a good one. <laughs> Sounds more like a medication than it does a name, does it? Okay. Introducing Zipporah. Uh, anyway, uh, so he marries this cow, and he decides uh, to become a shepherd for his father-in-law. And he's tending to his father-in-law's sheep. And one day, as he takes the sheep out to the wilderness, he sees a bush burning in the distance. Uh, but what's interesting about this bush is although it is burning, it is not consumed. It's still green and, and leafy. And so Moses thinks to himself, gosh, I, I ate some mushrooms back there, but I didn't think they were those kinds of mushrooms. And so I got to figure out what's going on. So he gets a little closer to the, sorry, that's, don't share that at the 11. Uh, he gets closer to the bush. And as he does, the voice of God calls to him from the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. So Moses removes his sandals and then he begins to get into this conversation with God. And we're going to pick up the dialogue starting in verse 7 of Exodus 3. And it says this. Then the Lord told Moses, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I know of their suffering. So I am coming down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites, sounds like a rap song, Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people of Israel out of Egypt. But then Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? But God answered, I will be with you. Pause there for just a moment. I love this response from God. I love that Moses does the thing that we were just talking about doing a moment ago. He makes this whole thing about himself. He, God is telling him how he's going to be used to deliver the people of Israel from from Pharaoh's slavery after 430 years. And the only thing Moses can think about is, well, what about me? Who, who am I? Who am I? Translation, I, I, I don't have what it takes. I've not improved enough. I've still got some sin. Don't you remember I murdered a guy a little while ago? I'm not the right candidate for the job. But God comes to Moses and he says, essentially, I have never been, nor am I currently interested in how much you've improved in this process. 
Your ability is, is not in question here. I know that even on your best day, you don't qualify for what I'm calling you into. Even in your most sanctified state, you will not qualify for what I'm calling into you. This is not the question. It's not about who you are. It's about who I am. And I have said that I will be with you. I'm just gonna use you as a vessel to deliver my people. It has never been about any of us in this room. I hate to tell you, even if you think you got it all figured out and you're living a righteous life, in comparison to God's holiness, the Bible says it's filthy rags. None of us qualify for what we're doing. I do not qualify for what I am doing right now. But if we will simply submit ourselves to the call of God and say, even in my weakness, he will be made strong. Even in my wretchedness, he uses me for his glory. Then he can take that and use you to do great things. I love this. I love this. So, so the conversation continues, and, and uh, oh, did I lose it? There it is. Uh, it, he goes on to say, this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested again. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me, they're going to ask me, well, what's his name? What should I tell them? And God replies to Moses, <laughs> I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. I am that I am. This is one of the baddest mic drop moments in the whole Bible. Like, like just... Think about that statement for a moment. God comes to Moses. He says, I'm going to deliver my people. And Moses says, who should I tell him sent me? Here's what you tell him. I am that I am. This is my eternal name for all generations. What a powerful statement. It even becomes more powerful when we understand what it means. In the Hebrew, this word I am is the word Chaya. Chaya. I'm going to say Chaya. Chaya. Not like Chaya, like, like Chaya. Like it, literally, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, like a karate chop. And, and rightfully so, because it's a powerful world. Hey, he's got dad jokes. Okay. Uh, it means this, to be or to become. To be or to become. By itself, theologians have called this word the aseity of God. It's a phrase that means independence or autonomy. It means that he is altogether self-sufficient. He needs nothing from anybody because he is everything. But, but when you combine the word and, and, and you, you repeat it, it becomes even more powerful. To say that I am that I am, it literally means, translated, I am becoming whatever I need to be. So, so, so who should I say sent me? Tell him the one who is becoming whatever they need him to be is the one that's being sent. The one who is becoming whatever needs to become for any given situation. If there's sickness, he is becoming healing. If there is lack, he is becoming provision. If there is bondage, he is becoming liberty. If there's an enemy, he's becoming victorious. He is becoming whatever he needs to be for whatever situation we face. It's a massive statement. I love the way the theologian uh, David Guzik writes it. He says this, I am that I am invites us to fill in the blank to meet our need. Come on, what is your need today? 
What do you need from God? I am declares, I am. I am exactly what you need for that situation. I can see people are still a little bit confused. So let me say something a little less theological and a little more ratchet, okay? I am essentially means that God is the guy. You know what I mean, right? Like, you're like, man, do you guys know anybody who can? And then someone's like, oh, I got a guy. Do you, do you know somebody who always has a guy for everything? You're like, hey, what do you need? I got a car guy. I got a water heater guy. I got a stoop guy. Hey, yeah, whatever you need, I got a guy. Get off the Google. Forget about it. Just call my guy and tell him Timmy sent you. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? I love that. I, uh, I was literally thinking about this while I was writing this section of the sermon down. Um, Dad, do you remember, um, we're going to have a conversation. Just hold on for a moment. Do you remember uh, uh, our car guy? Uh, uh, Jan. Jan, our car guy. Okay. Jan was sketchy, all right? So his shop was in the middle of nowhere. The guy never picked up his phone. He didn't have a voicemail set up. You could only use cash. And I remember every single time I sent people to Jan, I was like, I might be sending them to the mob. Why is it that anybody, like anytime you introduce your guy, everyone becomes like a mobster from Brooklyn. You're like, so this is literally the conversation. I could see the concern on people's faces. I would send them to Jan. I'm like, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get on Leisure Town Road. And then as you drive down, you're going to see these two trees. There's a, there's a dirt road. And you go down the dirt road, you're going to get to this gate. If the gate is closed, you beep your horn. Someone's going to open it up. If it's open, you go around the bend. And then you go to the warehouse, knock on the door three times. He'll open the door. And, and then just tell him Timmy sent you and Jan will get you taken care of, okay? <laughs> they look at me like, are you sending me to buy a baby? Like, what is happening right now? <laughs> Everyone say, I got a guy. Oh, come on, say it with an accent. I got a guy. Yeah. That is what this word means. Literally, like the definition of this word is to suggest whatever you need in any given circumstance, in any given situation, you have a guy and his name is I am. As the song suggested a moment ago, come on, the mountains bow before him. The demons run and flee. At the mention of his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You got a guy. He is the great I am. He is becoming whatever he needs to become. But while this word does suggest that he's becoming whatever he needs to become in every situation, it is incredibly important as we go to this series that we study first the unique situation whereby God introduces himself as I am. Why? Because ultimately, the, the way he introduces himself and the situation surrounding that introduction become the framework and the foundation that every subsequent mention of this name fits into throughout the entire council of Scripture. Uh, th there's a rule, and I've mentioned this before, but uh, bears repeating. There is a rule when we study Scripture, a, a, a body of laws, uh, that ensure that as we read the Bible, that we accurately interpret Scripture and accurately apply Scripture. Without rules, the, uh, that we would misapply and, and misinterpret Scripture and start using it incorrectly. And so uh, the smart people who've been studying the Bible for a long time uh, have established a set of guidelines and, and rules to ensure that we don't do so. Uh, the, the governing body 
body of rules is called hermeneutics. And one of the laws of hermeneutics is something called the law of first mention. And the law of first mention states that anytime you see something in the Bible for the first time, you need to pay particularly close attention because a precedent is being established that will follow not just through the remainder of scripture, but through the remainder of eternity. And for example, um, when you see worship mentioned in the Bible for the first time, it is mentioned in the context of sacrifice. Uh, Abraham is bringing his son Isaac uh, to Mount Moriah. And as he goes to the top of the mountain, he turns to his servants and he says, me and the boy are going to go up to the hill and we're going to worship. That's the first time you see the word worship in scripture. And it's in the context of sacrifice. Uh, Worship is not the first 27 minutes of a service. It is not a genre on iTunes. No, worship is the act of sacrifice. It is saying, you have all of me, God. That's why it says in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, let us offer a sacrifice of praise unto God, the fruit of our own lips. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 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 <laughs> mercy, offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice because this is your reasonable act of worship. Worship and sacrifice, they run hand in hand. You cannot worship without sacrifice. That is why I think one of the purest forms of worship on any given Sunday morning is when you don't feel like it. When it is a sacrifice. When the lyrics on the screen contradict your reality and your emotions don't align and make you want to lift your hands, but you say, I am choosing right now in obedience as an act of sacrifice to lift my hands and give God praise because he is worthy regardless of how I feel. That's true worship. Another sermon for another day. But the first sets precedent. And as it is for worship, so it is for this name, I am. We need to pay close attention to the circumstances surrounding this introduction because it's establishing a precedent, not just for scripture, but from now on. So then the question becomes, what are the circumstances? Well, we read it a moment ago. Let's read it again. Verse seven. Then the Lord told him, Moses, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their cries of distress. I know of their suffering, so I am coming down to rescue. I have seen, I have heard, I know, and therefore I am coming down to rescue to deliver, to save. When God introduces himself in scripture for the first time as the great I am, it is in the context of deliverance. It's in the context of salvation. He says, I am coming down to where you're at so that I can set you free. This is the precedent that's being established. And I have to imagine that was a a pretty incredible promise for the Israelites to hear at this moment. I mean, just let's imagine. Imagine this news after 430 years. You've been begging God for centuries to come to your rescue. Every time a Hebrew man is whipped by a slave driver, he cries out, God, don't you see what's happening down here? Every time an Egyptian soldier bears into the house of a Hebrew woman, takes advantage of her in front of her children, she cries out, God, don't you you hear our cries for help? Every time a baby is thrown into the Nile at the genocidal demands of Pharaoh, a family cries out, 
God, aren't you aware of what's taking place down here? Don't you see? Don't you hear? Don't you care? And after 430 years, God comes and he says, I see. I, I, I hear. I know. And in your generation, I am coming down to bring rescue. What a promise. But don't forget hermeneutics. Because it's not just a promise he made to a generation of Israelites. What did he say? This is my eternal name for all generations. And you are a generation here in the room today. And that means the promise that he made to Israel, he makes to every single one of us as well. This was not reserved for a group of a few million slaves in Egypt. This is a promise that God has made to us right here, right now, in our generation, and in our city. When it feels like no one sees, I am sees. When it feels like your prayers are not being answered, I am hears. When it feels like he has no idea what's happening, I am knows. And then when it feels like your deliverance is delayed and every single day the enemy is beating you up and taking advantage of you and you can't get free, he says, I see, I hear, I know, and I am coming down to your rescue in your day. I could feel you wanting to clap, so thanks for waiting until I was done. <laughs> Don't miss this. Don't miss the, the first mention here. By God saying, I am that I am, he is saying, I'm not a deity that's up in heaven with my arms folded waiting for you to figure out how you can make your way to me. No, I'm the God that sees and hears and knows and comes down from the throne of heaven. I come down into the muck and the mire of where you're living Isaiah 59, his arm is not too short to save, no, his ear too dull to hear. It doesn't matter how long you've been there, how long you've suffered, what the situation surrounding your suffering looks like. He comes to emancipate the enslaved, to deliver the downcast, to bring salvation to those that are in suffering, and to promise you once again, I see you, I hear you, I know you, and I'm coming to rescue you. That's the promise of this scripture. That's the foundation of this name. And that is exciting and it, it preaches well and it gets us all excited. But if we're honest, it also stirs up a, a bit of a question, doesn't it? At least it does for me. Because although I am glad to hear he sees, he hears, he knows, I still feel like there's some areas areas where I need rescue. So the question is, when? When you come in God? If this is the promise, I'm grateful that you've saved my soul, but when are you going to come down to rescue this situation? When are you going to deal with this sickness? When are you going to fix the fit? When are you coming to rescue? And if you ask such a question, then you're in good company. I would assume that the Israelites found themselves asking that question as well as Moses comes to tell them, hey, the Lord says he's come down. And they're like, but we're still building bricks with less straw. So, so, so when is this deliverance going to come? I can say that even in my own life and the life of my family, we're grateful that God has taken us out of a number of Egypts and rescued us from many things. But there's still some areas of our life where we're waiting for rescue. My daughter goes in this Friday once again for another endoscopy where 
They look at her vascular system and determine if they need to put rubber bands around her veins because her blood clot has still not been healed and we've been praying for a year and a half. And so, yeah, thank you that you see. Thank you that you hear. Thank you that you know. But God, when are you coming down to rescue my baby girl? And for all of us, us in this uncomfortable space of inquisition, let me offer a little bit of perspective that might help us. That The Holy Spirit reminded me of this week as I was studying our text. After God comes and makes this promise, look at what he says to Moses. He says in verse 20, So I will raise my hand of judgment and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of wonders among them. Then at last, Pharaoh will let you go, and I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go, so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, plundering the Egyptians. Plundering the Egyptians. And in nine chapters, we read the fulfillment of this promise as after a series of miraculous events, God issues a final blow against Egypt and they strip the Egyptians of their wealth and the Israelites make their way out of slavery and into the promise. So, so think about this for a moment. For 430 years, God allowed the population of Israel to increase while simultaneously allowing the resources and the wealth of the Egyptians to increase. He, he could have freed them at any point during that 430 years, but he didn't. He waited until such a time that the population was such that they could establish themselves as an independent nation and that the resources they needed had been amassed enough so that upon their departure, they would be provided for and never have to return to slavery again. Let me say it differently. God waited until the perfect time when he could ensure that the departure of his people meant the decimation of their enemy once and for all so that not only this nation, but no nation would have to be enslaved by the Egyptians again. And that as he delivered they would be provided for. He waited until such a time that their freedom was permanent. It reminds me of a, a phrase that Jesus uses. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Hey, God is not interested in you getting free for a week or a month or a season. When God delivers you, he wants his deliverance to be permanent. He wants to ensure that you are free indeed. So could it be that while you're waiting, God is orchestrating the events of your deliverance in such a way that when you're freed, you never go back to that enemy again. That when you're freed, it has a generational impact for your children and your children's children. 
Could it be that while you're praying for God to fix your family or to restore that relationship, that he's fashioning in you the man or woman that will break generational curses of addiction and divorce and anger and abuse so that your children and your children's children and your children's children's children will never have to deal with those things again? Could it be that while you're asking for God to answer that promise and to break through in the area that you're asking him for breakthrough, he's weeding out pride and self-sufficiency and the own plans that you have for your life so that when you arrive into the promise, you don't become a statistic like everybody else that gets taken out because they got there too soon, but you have a steadfastness and a staying power in the call of God because he orchestrated the events before you got there. And could it be that while we are asking and seeking and knocking and believing for God to heal my daughter's blood condition or heal Brittany's cancer or heal many of the others in this community that we're praying for, that he is fashioning inside of us a faith that is not rooted in a quick answer to prayer, but a faith that is rooted like it says in Romans chapter four, where Abraham's faith grew stronger in the waiting because it was not rooted in an outcome, but it was rooted in the one who made the promise in the first place. Because listen, if so, if that's what God's doing, then I will continue to ask and seek and knock and pray because I believe he's breaking the generational curses of cancer and blood disorders and sickness once and for all so that my children's children will not have to walk through it. And I'll keep doing what he's asked me to do because though I don't know the day of my deliverance, here's what I know. I know the one who sees and who hears and who knows and who promises I'm coming down to rescue you. Don't despise the timing of God. You don't know what he's doing. While you're waiting, rest assured, he is working in that. I am, I am sees, I am knows, I am hears. And I am is coming down. So, the moment of truth. Hey, I made it on time, look at that. And in fact, let me invite the worship team so that I speed up even more. The moment of truth, having now spent 32 minutes telling you about who he says he is, let me ask you the most important question that you will not have to answer just during this series, but in your lifetime. A question that has eternal implications. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? God knows who he is. He doesn't have any identity crisis on his hands. <laughs> Moses knows him as the great I am. The Israelites experienced the delivering power of his name. Even Pharaoh, he was, he was confronted with the great I am. But none of them can answer this question for you. Only you can answer this question. Who do you say he is? Because just as it is a eternal name for all generations, so your answer to that question has eternal implications. Jesus, one day, he's talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. And he looks at him and he says, hey, um, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? They see me healing and raising the dead and opening blind eyes. Who do they think is doing all this stuff? And his disciples chime in and they're like, oh, some say that, that you're John the Baptist, Baptist, raised to life again. And some people call you Elisha and others, one of the prophets from the Old Testament, reincarnate. He 
He's like, oh, that's cool. Those are good reputations. I like that. But then he shifts gears and he looks his disciples in the eyes and he says, okay, next question. Who do you say that I am? It's cool that that's what they say. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, loudmouth Peter, I resonate with him. Don't laugh at that. He chimes up, he chimes in and he says, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are salvation. You are the rescuer. You are the deliverer. You're the one that spoke to Moses from a burning bush. You're the one that opened up the Red Sea for the Israelites. You're the one that crushed the walls of Jericho. You're the one that displayed your power for enemies. You're the one that filled a widow's jars with all of her needs. You're the same one from the Old Testament that we read about. I know who you are. You are the one who sees and who hears and who knows and has come down to be salvation for all of us. You're the great I am. I know who you are. And now you're standing in front of me and you're offering me the exact same thing. You're offering me deliverance. You're the Messiah. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but God told you who I am. And, and I think Jesus is here at the beginning of this series in the room today asking the exact same question of every person. Who do you say I am? And he's not asking if you come to church occasionally. He's not asking if you know a few Bible verses. He's not asking if you know a few worship songs. He doesn't care what religious denomination you're affiliated with or the name of the church on the front or the Masonic temple on the front of the building you attend. It's not his concern. He's asking, do you know the one that speaks from a burning bush and invites you to stand on holy ground? Do you know the one that offers deliverance to generations? Do you know the one with the eternal name that sees and hears and knows and comes down to rescue? Do you know me as the great I am? And if today you've gone through religious motions up until this point and you do not know him at that level, I can think of no more appropriate way than to start this series, but to offer an introduction. He is the great I am. He's speaking to you from the bush today and he's offering you the opportunity to step into that relationship and see him as deliverer. In fact, let me pray that over us this week. Come on, let's bow our heads. Speak to us now, Jesus. Reveal yourself in the unique way that you do to each individual here. I pray for those who are in difficult, traumatic, prolonged situations. Would they hear your voice? As you spoke to Moses, would you speak to them? I see, I hear your prayers. I know, I know what you're walking through and I'm coming down to rescue. May we be convinced of that promise today. And here's the invitation. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm far from God, and I don't know him intimately, personally, but I sense the Holy Spirit drawing me right now to come close. This is your moment. Take off your sandals, step up to the bush, enter into the conversation. Let him save you. Let him deliver you. Let him take you out of where you're at and into where he's called you to be. And if your heart 
would say, I need that this morning. I'm gonna pray a prayer of commitment along with you right now as we conclude. And as we do, if, if you would say, that's resonating with me today, I need to pray that prayer with you, Pastor Tim. Would you just quickly lift your hand up and look at me so that I know who I'm praying with? Thank you. I got both you guys right there. Sir, I got you right there. Got you right here, sweetheart. Awesome. Yeah, got you up there. Cool. Yeah, come on. We can thank God for these lifting their hands. That's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. All right, we're gonna pray this together with those making this decision and let's, uh, let's be bold as we do so. Everyone say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple from this day forward. I wanna walk with you until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.